Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, good evening, everyone. My name is Emily Chapel, and I, I am your host for the evening. So this has been put on by Bello Velo in order to raise money for something rather extraordinary that some of their riders are planning to do this summer. I am the lead cyclist of an event called Le Loop. And in case you haven't already heard of this, it offers riders the opportunity to ride multiple stages of the Tour de France, any number from two or three to all 21 stages, fully supported and uh, thankfully with no time cut off, which means we can enjoy ourselves. And many women from Bella Velo have uh, signed up to come along and ride some of the toughest stages of this year's Tour de France route. One of the particularly special things about Le Loop is that every rider who joins us has a fundraising target. And Le Loop raises money for what's known as the William Waits Memorial Trust, which is a charitable foundation that raises money for projects that help disadvantaged young people who have not had very many opportunities in life and gives them the chance to fulfill their potential and avoid getting into a life of crime and misery. And we've met quite a lot of the young people that uh, the Trust has worked with over the years. It's an extraordinary thing to be part of. And I believe that many of the people in this room who are riding in Le Loop have already raised huge amounts of money for this cause. So I'd like to introduce our... Um, elite women's cycling panel for this evening so to my left we have uh fran cuts who is an amateur cyclist with team london which is uh, a local team who are moving on to big things this year and fran also manages to hold down a full-time job in a health te healthcare tech startup which means she's effectively working two jobs because I believe being a racing cyclist is not particularly easy. To the left of Fran, we have Abby Dentus, who is one of the shining stars of uh, current British cycling. Abby rides for Brother UK Tafosi. She was a silver medalist at the European Championships and holds three national titles. She rode in the Tour de Yorkshire and she's also very talented on the track. So we're very excited to have her along. Further over to the left, we have Molly Weaver, who is uh, currently shaking up the women's cycling scene as a podcaster, a commentator, and a writer. She has ridden for Matrix Pro Cycling, for Team Sunweb, and Trek Drops, and she's... <laughs> 
currently uh, taking a, a hiatus from professional cycling, though we won't say she's retired and, uh, and will return. Over at the end, we have Dr. Fiona Struthers, who is a GP in Scotland and who works on uh, additionally on horse racing events, on motorcycling events and on cycling events. Fiona is our team doctor on Le Loop, which means last year she rode the entire route of the Tour de France. She also spent hours and hours every day dealing with all the things that go wrong with riders while they're doing the same thing. So Fiona is an expert on things like saddle sore and dehydration and <laughs> and all the other things that, that you might expect to go wrong under such circumstances. So um, we'll be asking her for the, the scientific details of such things as we go on. So before we kick off the discussion, I'd like to say a big thank you to all the organisations that have sponsored this event this evening. We have a glittering array of prizes here. So if you've bought a raffle ticket, there's all sorts of things for you to win. I'd like to thank Ultra Sports Clinic, um, who have donated a voucher for a sports massage. Uh, This is a multidiscipline treatment facility based in central London, and it supports athletes and sports enthusiasts with physio, with massage, with bike fits, and they they take a holistic approach to keeping you going as an athlete. I'd like to say a big thank you to Ride Clean, uh, particularly because they are at some point going to clean my bike for me. It's a mobile bike cleaning service started up by Katie uh, not particularly long ago, but I believe they're already going from strength to strength. They will literally turn up and clean your bike for you. Um, As far as I'm concerned, this is the best business anyone has ever started. Thank you very much, Ride Clean. VeloVixen have donated a £25 voucher and a pair of padded pants. VeloVixen, in case you haven't heard of them, are, I think, the UK's premier online women's bike clothing shopping emporium epic cycles uk have uh, donated a lasagne torque drive they are excellent not only in that they support molly weaver but they're also uh, the uk's number one high performance bike shop have bike have donated a super deluxe service i have had my bike serviced by have bike and i can confirm they are pretty good and we have, we have various other prizes, including books by, I don't know, some, some losers. And <laughs> I say that because I wrote one of them, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, in case that wasn't apparent. So thank you very, very much to, to all of the sponsors and all of the people who have donated prizes. Without further ado, on to, on to this evening's debate, which is, how far do you want to go? So, we have the creme de la creme of British female racers here and we want to find out what the next few years hold for women's racing. How many people in this room watched a women's bike race last year? Put your hand down if it was La Course. Okay, so that's that's a better than I thought, but not very many. So I'd like to find out what sh- what else should we be watching? How much, uh, how much more is there to women's cycling than La Course? Among the three races we have here, how, how many of you have ridden in La Course? I've ridden in it, yeah. Uh, maybe twice, but maybe also once. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that memorable. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's a big part of my life. Um, yeah, I've ridden it. I rode it the Isoard year. 
I don't think I ever rode it on the Champs-Élysées, but everything rolls together when you're in the races, yeah. yeah. But it's definitely, from the perspective of when you're racing it, you know it's a different kind of event. I think I've also raced other races where there's a men's alongside the women's, and you get a similar sense of that. So stuff like the Tour of Flanders, that Het Newsblad, things like that, again, Bevelgum, they're on the, on the same day. Um, you also get a bit of a sense of there being some like gravitas around it, there's bigger infrastructure, there's cameras and stuff there but you it's not the same as as the course that's like a different beast and you you know then that you're part of something that's big and in the team meetings there's always okay we want to win this race but we also want to put on a show because this is our platform to do that um i think that's where that race differs a bit is that you know it's your platform whereas some of the others even if there's coverage you're not as aware of it as you are with with the course Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question to, to everybody up here. I'll start with you, Abby Dentus. What is the race that you have done that you are the most proud of? Like, if, if we could all go back in time and be there when you were riding the best race of your life, what race would that be? What race do you want to share with us? Um, I would say the Tour of Yorkshire. I didn't actually ride... I mean, I didn't get a result. Um, but it was the toughest race I've ever done on the road. And yeah, I think it was just for a women's race, I thought it was pretty epic to have finished on the hill that we did. And no, it was just a really good race. So. Thank you. <laughs> and Fran, um, what race are you the most proud of? Um, so I've done the last couple of years, it's an Irish stage race um, called the Ross. Um, probably my best result was last year, where I was most proud of where I was most proud of myself Um, it's five days six stages um, lots of tough hilly courses um, a crit and a basically it was a TT but it was a hill climb Um, and the first day I kind of got in there with the bunch sprint I ended up like 20th but out of 100 girls that was probably a result that I'm most proud of in like an international field Um, and then overall came like 31st so for me, that was just getting in there with the big girls, really, um, and proving to myself that I can make those rides. Cool. And Molly, it sounds like the course has all sort of blended into one, but uh, what, what's the race that you're the most proud of and you'd like to show off a bit? It's actually, it's hard to call them. I think, for a personal perspective, probably the classics, but probably my best race in terms of like a team you know, an overall team feeling was the Giro maybe 2016. That was probably the best. It was straight off the back of the women's tour, which is also, you know, that was also a good year for that. We had a, a GC rider, so it was kind of, we really like backed her and we'd lost our climber for both races um, to a knee injury. So we went into both and they said, okay, we're not really going to do anything here. Like we'll go for stage results. We haven't got a, a GC leader. And then day one, we won the prologue with one of our teammates. So then it was like, okay, we're going for GC. And overnight in the Giro, you're like, oh, this was going to be a bit of a laugh. And now suddenly we're in the lead and we're in the pink jersey. And, and actually, kind of, we surpassed what we thought we'd do. And we ended up getting like seventh or eighth overall on GC off the back of we're going to do nothing. So it was kind of, we were all a little bit unprepared, like psychologically, but then it, it just became just camaraderie and, and, and togetherness and it was on those races where we all were just completely for that common goal and it, it just at the end of it you just felt like we'd all we'd all won so it's kind of we felt like we'd won it even though we hadn't won it kind of thing and yeah that was a, a good race yeah 
And that's something that I can't quite imagine happening in, in men's cycling. Like when, when people line up for the big men's stage races, you kind of know which two or three riders are going to get it and which teams are going to dominate. Would it be fair to say that women's racing is a little bit less predictable or more varied? It's far less predictable, yeah. I think you can sit down and say, okay, realistically, this is the 10 riders that we want to watch in this race. Um, but I think actually the not lack of professionalism I don't want to say it's that we don't have, go in with a plan because you do every team goes in with a plan but I think what people have to remember is you only have 10 riders so in a men's team they're going to have like realistically sort of like 30 riders on the team so when they go to something like the tour that team's been the tour the tour team since you know September October when they first joined it and you know that's going to be your race and you've built the whole team around that. Um, whereas that Giro wasn't even supposed to race it until the week before. So it's like you only have 10. We had two out in injury, so you have eight. And so suddenly you're doing these races that you weren't even supposed to be doing. And you've got teams which are so varied because actually you only have one of each like speciality. Um, and then domestiques. And it's much harder, I think, to control from the perspective of some of the teams less professional, but also from the perspective of you haven't got this team that's always going to have been just for the Giro, it's always going to have been just for the women's tour or, or whatever. So that was one where I think I finished a, 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 stage, a stage race in Belgium, like a little race, and I got taken back to the train station by my DS, and he was like, oh, I need to talk to you. I was like, okay. And he's like, so you're racing the Giro? And I was like, oh, I was going to go on holiday, but okay. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that was a bit of an annoyance. And at the time, I didn't want to race it really, because we didn't have a GC leader. So I thought, oh God, like I don't want to have to like, slog around Italy and the heat and like the crappy hotels and like have to deal with all that. We're not even going to do anything there. And then it ended up being the race of the year where everyone wanted to do it. And then we had like an amazing time. And so I think in that respect, it's just like the unpredictability of of the whole structure of the team even. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask everybody present how you ended up becoming a bike racer. I'm going to start with Fiona and ask why you didn't end up becoming a bike racer. So I've, I've ridden with Fiona for three weeks around France and I hate to admit it, but she's quite good. And I know that you used to row. So what, what was it that led you to not become a bike racer? Uh, I got into biking more because I gave up rowing because my back was done in. And, yeah, I, I realised the commitment that it gives. So I would imagine that all these guys train hard. They sacrifice a lot. They yeah, don't go out a lot of the time. They spend a lot of time in the gym. The gym becomes their best friend. Um, and probably work works busy as well and as you get older it becomes difficult to juggle everything and something has to give and yeah so I think I enjoy what I do I enjoy participating I enjoy doing what I do and being part of uh, the the little loop um, being part of other teams but I think to, to actually race is a whole different animal and yeah it, it's sacrifice and you know hands up to these guys that do that because it is it's sacrifice so yeah are you are you competitive would you say we bet I I know the answer (laughs) yeah slightly (laughs) we bet so how uh, how do you bring competition into your life given that you are not formally racing you should have prepared me for this question (laughs) Uh, probably by enabling others to do things so so um, uh, or trying to be the best at what I do do 
So at work, um, I constantly try to do extra exams or uh, do extra courses. Um, when I'm out doing um, the, the, the cycling and things, I'll have a day where I set myself a wee target. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's just about encouraging others now to, to do that. Because I've had my, I, f- I feel like I've I'd, I achieved all that I wanted to do when I was doing the rowing. I've done that. And actually now it's just about encouraging others and getting others to achieve their goals and seeing the enjoyment that they get from doing that. Great. Thank you. Okay, so uh, Fran, how did you end up becoming a bike racer? You've been doing this, I guess, for you know 10 years or so. Did you grow up cycling? So I... Is that yeah? So I actually um, I've been I was at uni here for five years, um, and you very quickly learn that in London travel is very expensive. Buying a pass for the tube to travel, I realised I could one off buy a bike for the same amount of money in one month. So I did that instead, so I'd have more money. <laughs> um, and then that was basically it. I started commuting a lot. Um, I eventually got a place to do joggle so that's John O'Groats Land's End cycling down the country um, and in preparation for that I joined like a local club um, CC London and once I joined them I never looked back um, being in such a supportive environment I just loved going out and riding my bike more and more I really looked forward to the weekends going out with everyone and then I came back from the uh, event joggle and everyone there was like, well, you're super fit now. I'd basically been on a two-week training camp cycling down the country. Um, everyone put me forward to kind of enter some races. Um, so I entered races, and then that was it. And then three years later, I'm here now. It's not quite what I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Abby, I, I believe you've been, you have quite a long racing pedigree. Um, how, how did you get into this? Was it a career plan? So I was about seven um, when I started racing, uh, so I was only young, and I used to go to my local club with my dad and watch him race, um, and then decided I wanted to have a go. So I was an under 10 when I was racing, so I used to race with the boys, and when I started beating them, I was like, oh, I want to I do this now for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we stopped racing with the boys, so, um, but no, I just loved it from when I did it, and I used to look forward to going every Saturday rather than sitting at home like my brothers and sisters watching TV. Um, I used to look forward to going to ride my bike. Do your brothers and sisters also race or is it only you? No, they never have. So it's just been me. So me and my dad have been doing... Well, he's been taking me everywhere since I was about seven. So, yeah, many years now. Cool. And uh, Molly, how did you get into racing? Was it for the money? (laughs) Yeah, dream on. Um, I was also relatively young, not not that young. At that age, I used to go on one bike ride a year and cry on the little hill up to my house and then throw my bike away. Um, I used to be a hockey player, like a field hockey player, um, and I got a knee injury while I was on an England selection camp thing. And they said, oh, you should go and ride a bike because like physiotherapy. My dad cycled. He's like, yes. And I was like, no. And then um, his um, best mate is William Fotheringham, the author, um, cycling journalist, author, man. And um, he, my dad said, oh, you should get into cycling. And I was like, no. And then he said, I should get into cycling. I was like, okay. So then, um, <laughs> so, 
then he took me down Hale's own track and I went to the edge of the banking cried again because I was like this is so steep and it was like a concrete track that's not steep at all um, eventually he got me to go out on the, on the track and I did some yeah, training sessions there um, kind of got bitten by the bug like straight away and the coaches said oh like you could be good and I was like you have no idea but okay you're complimenting me so um, I rang up my hockey coach and was like yeah not going to play hockey anymore never touched a hockey stick again um, and then kind of just progressed through I just raced in Britain for years I went to university dropped out of university <laughs> to become a professional cyclist and then that was that was that I kind of once I committed I just carried on up the ladder and then fell off the ladder but you know <laughs> maybe I'll get back on it we don't know yet <laughs> well, well we'll get on to that yeah. a bit later <laughs> so um, thank you very much everyone um, so multi-stage events these are the big showstoppers so everybody's heard of the Tour de France everybody's heard of the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta um, there are fewer of these for women um, but there are some and I think, I think just about everyone here has ridden a few multi-day events. Fiona at a, at a leisurely pace, not really, and uh, everybody else uh, in races. So I'm going to ask each of you, what, what are the challenges of a multi-day event that might be different from a, you know, a one-off race that lasts a couple of hours? Um, what are the things that you wouldn't necessarily think about the first time you go into it that after a few days of racing really kind of come out to bite you? Um, I'll go. Yeah, go for it. Oh, I, <laughs> I went to go, and then there you go. Um, what? What? I've forgotten the question. <laughs> uh, the challenges. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I think just recovering. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I think it's just recovering day on day. For for a lot of it, it's the psychological battle. So, always the first one of the year. I mean, you get after day one, you're like, oh God, like, I'm not going to be able to do it again. So I think most years on the pro scene, most riders, the first one we race is the women's tour. Um, and that feels like a classic every day, effectively. So you've, you've come out of spring classic season where you've been racing. Where you've been, again, where you've been racing like, I don't know, four hours as, as hard as you can and normally on cobbles and stuff. So it's a little bit harder, but you go and you do day one of, of something like the women's tour and you think, oh, that was as hard as a classic and I've got to do it again tomorrow. And I remember the first one you do, you're going up in like the lifts, the hotel room and stuff and you're all like, oh God, there's no way I can do that again tomorrow. And luckily everyone's saying it, so you think, well, we all have to, so it's fine. Um, but it's psychologically, I think, getting over the hurdle of, I mean, that's only five days currently. So actually that goes quite quickly. Once you get through sort of three, you're like, oh, two more. Um, something like the Giro's 10. That one's harder because you get to five and you're like, oh, five more. So that's then psychologically you really have to like just click into the routine of you get a day plan at the start of each day and you're just a robot. You're a machine on that, following that plan. You have to just not think about anything beyond the next day. But at the same time, you have to always be trying to conserve. So it's kind of playing the mental balancing game, I think, is the, is the trick, is kind of conserving, but also pretending it's one day. <laughs> yeah. Does, um, how does everyone else feel? Abby, um, what do you think of the, the challenges of the multi-day event? So I think mine's mainly eating and drinking. It's something completely different, but I struggle with remembering to try and eat and drink, knowing that I've got two or three stages maybe more afterwards and I think it's so easy to forget when the racing is so hard you're absolutely smashing it and you forget oh like 
it's so hard just to reach into your pocket to try and get a bar because you're just so tired and you're just trying to hang on to the wheel in front I think that is hard for me and there's so much to go, like watch when you're in the race like so many people doing random things and I think that's my main challenge is eating and drinking so, so just, just yeah. keep it together that's probably the big thing mm-hmm. like when you're on a big thing but I will say that when you're on the tour then it's croissants you'll get sick of looking at croissants and brioche chocolate brioche you'll think you can't look at any more chocolate brioche ever again because by day 20 looking at chocolate brioche in the morning yeah yeah, yeah so it's a sad day when you realise you don't actually want to eat croissants anymore I mean I got into cycling for the food um, but there, there is a limit even to that um so Fran, what, what's your what's your challenge? Um, definitely similar to everyone else. The recovery is a massive thing. Um, I think I struggled when I've been away that after a race you want to kind of catch up with everyone um, and then you kind of have to remember that you need to get your rest and go to bed and you can't kind of stay up and talk to everyone as you would maybe on a normal day at home. Definitely remembering to eat properly. You get sick of you wake up the next morning you're like you don't really feel hungry because you're sick of eating all the time but you have to remember to eat because how else are you gonna finish that day um and then maybe a few times when you've had a bad day or you've crashed and something's happened to your bike to not get too upset about it um to remember that for these things as well i think you're always in a team and to kind of not get too down about it and try and keep everyone else happy as well around you um it's all for me especially it's never been very serious um I've never had a team where I've had to get results and we're all doing it for fun so it's important for me to remember that and not get too kind of bogged down in seriousness I guess a little bit I think that's also something that differs a bit from like amateur to professional is that you get spoiled by being told what to do so you we have a radio and they'll be saying the instructions constantly and one of them is eat and drink eat and drink so if they're ever not telling you something about the race at hand it's remember to eat and drink remember to eat and drink until you're pulling the radio out your ear because the man in the car won't stop telling you to eat and drink um and then after a race you have a plan and a day plan and minute by the time you go to bed you've just literally followed a time plan the whole day and you've had like massage and you've had you get given your recovery like you get off the race and you get given your recovery drink you're given the next thing to eat we have things in boxes to eat so you kind of have no choice you get given a uh, like a plastic tub at the start of a race day and you have to finish that food in the race like that is already like the nutritionist has calculated the calories for the race based on your weight you get weighed at the end of the race to see how much water you've lost to then have to reach that target so that's where like you then are a bit spoiled in that respect so when you don't have that you're then like oh how do i drink and eat when i'm not being told to drink and eat so that i think that's where that differs a little bit as well so when we're on the loop um one of we don't have any of that stuff we're very well supported but we don't get weighed at the end of stages <laughs> maybe we should start doing that emily oh you don't want it <laughs> it's really depressing if there's like the mortarola the next day and you're like well i'm heavy today like you don't want it <laughs> well what i was going to say is that we do have the advantage of dr fiona who every 10 minutes or so says guys if you're not peeing you're not drinking enough <laughs> Um, anyone who is riding the loop this year will will get used to this. It's um, it's a famous feature of the loop being yelled at by a belligerent Scottish doctor. Um, 
I don't do it that often, honestly. <laughs> every 20 minutes, maybe. Um, but it, it is sound advice, and as a result of that, I now drink more when riding. Um, so um, that's an interesting insight into what the pros do and how in some ways it sounds like it's easier. Though I guess having been through that system, now if you go out for a ride, do you find yourself completely at a loss um, without the radio? I think you get used to just being spoon-fed everything. So even you have like you have like 10 bikes so even like each bike is like you never have to take it anywhere and you have to even your training bike i mean we used to get told off every time that we brought it back to the mechanics they're like what is this like we've never cleaned them we don't care like it doesn't nothing really means anything to you and that that kind of stuff doesn't have value to you and then suddenly you own your bike and you're like my baby like it's like you you feel differently about that and i think even stuff like you'd never pump your own tires up so suddenly like you go to get on the bike like oh these aren't pumped up like anybody gonna help me with this like kind of you just get like spoiled by just having everything done literally everything so I don't know anything about bikes really so it's really embarrassing like, oh what gear are you running I'm like I don't even know what number to say like I don't even know what I would start to say like <laughs> things like they're like what tire pressure do you normally run like I have I let the, Simon the mechanic decide like I honestly know like you can start to get quite embarrassed and then I like, they'll ask you a question I don't know anything about the bike ever I'm like I don't know like, I just I let them lean I just nod <laughs> but you could probably beat all of us up a hill which is oh, amazing maybe not anymore <laughs> the cake and alcohol became my friends so <laughs> and is that was that quite a relief having um, and this is a question for everyone because it, it must be quite hard living this rigorous life of a professional or very serious cyclist and having to you know watch what you eat and watch how often you go out and make sure you drink enough and all of that do people get to like the end of their career or the off season and just kind of let it all go oh the off season's a special time um that's where like every male and female pro is just like day drunk night drunk everything drunk like you see like professional cyclists wandering around the streets of drone and you're like oh are you okay it's like oh you're drunk and i think stoned but okay and um it's kind of that's the the valve kind of gets released so normally everyone has three four weeks in october um and you can tell it's the off season um and i mean you have to get like all your parties out in one go and then you don't want to do it again because you've just destroyed your body for like a month um, and then I didn't retire, but kind of retired. And that was like, oh, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Like, my body's not a temple. And uh, then you get to the point where you want to ride a bike and you're like, oh, my body's not a temple. Like, this is not good. <laughs> God, you can get really bad at riding a bike in six months. Like, really bad. Um, so I think that is like a psychological release that, I mean, you've, especially if you've been on a pro program, um, everything is your food is so managed your diet so managed your lifestyle we used to have a log book they called it and you had to fill in like every minute of the day what you were doing so not even just your training you'd have to say where you were outside of that fill in all your food or your all the drink you'd had like we didn't drink alcohol but all the liquid you'd had um and yeah every minute of every day had to be accounted for um you'd have like weight targets we got like weigh-ins and fat measurements and power tests all the time so it is a very managed environment where you're constantly trying to reach a target that loads of people are watching you try and reach and and it's there's a lot of stress related with that and pressure on that, that sounds great for your mental health oh it, it, clearly it was fantastic <laughs> So, um, Abby, you, you were telling me just now that you've, you've just moved from uh, the academy in Manchester back to a more sane and sensible lifestyle and you're riding for yourself a lot yep. more. 
So um, how does that feel? Do you feel the pressure's off and you can relax? Or are you going crazy with the booze? Um, how has it been? Well, I actually had my first ever off-season this year. As obviously I do the road and the track. Well, I did do the road and the track, so I'd never ever really... I think I had about four, five days off, maybe a week, I think, in the whole year. Um, I mean, two years ago, I had most of the year off through injury, so, I mean, but obviously it wasn't quite the same. So this year, yeah, I had my off-season, and I loved it. And, yeah, and obviously I'm not on the programme anymore, and, yeah, the pressure's off, um, and it's just much more chilled. I'm much happier, and I'm just learning to enjoy, I think, racing and riding again. And, obviously, I've been doing it since I was seven, so, obviously, it's nice just to have a bit of a break and I took actually I took just over a month off so that was quite a lot of time for me <laughs> so no it was really good and yeah I'm just so much happier now brilliant so I guess if you've been doing it since you were seven this is just a part of your life now I mean w- would you ever stop cycling could you I mean oh, I'm looking for a job now um, as well as a part-time job and I've never even worked like, I've never had a job so yeah that's a massive step as well for me so yeah literally cycling has been my life and kind of is my life and it's weird, I, was, I tell people, it's like I've been in a bubble. I don't really know much about real life, really. It sounds really stupid, but obviously I was on the, kind of like the GB kind of programme called Talent Team since I was 14. So it's been quite serious since I was about 14. Um, so for it not to be seri- as serious now, it's, it's quite nice. I've kind of lived that bit now, so that's good. Brilliant. <laughs> Sounds like it's going well. Yes. <laughs> um, so going back to these uh, massive multi-day events, um, I guess we're all wondering, you know, what, what would a, a proper mainstream women's grand tour look like? And um, ideally, I guess we'd have like, you know, a full three weeks of 200k stages with a lot of mountains, or would we? So I did quite a lot of research preparing for this panel, and I've not been able to find very many um, current um, active pro female cyclists who want exactly that. Most of them, when, uh, when they're in... I think what we'd like at the moment is maybe a week, three to five days. And, for example, I think uh, Katya Niemadova at uh, Canyon Sram was saying, we, we don't want a long one. We like the short stages. They're more aggressive. We can attack more. Anything over 140K just gets boring. And uh, for anyone who watched stage eight of France last year, I'm sure they will agree. Whereas uh, the shorter stages, um, there the were a bit more in terms of fireworks. Um, however, yes. Um, Try this one. Also, let's just keep going. I'll just talk really loudly. How's that? Awesome. So, um, again, we all watched La Course. We all saw that incredible finish where Anna van der Breggen pretty much had it in the bag, and then with about a second to go, Annemiek van Vleuten managed to catch her and overtake her and won. What you might not know is that van Vleuten had just won the Giro, so she'd raced for 10 days, sat in a car for most of the day to get to La Course, 
and it was her 11th day of racing more or less consecutively van der Breggen hadn't ridden in the Giro so she was fresh that didn't stop van Vleuten winning um, the fact that she could perform at a level like that after 10 days of racing makes me think that maybe we should be having much much longer um, women's stage races but what do you guys think have, have you noticed that you get stronger a few days into the race do other riders does it suit a particular sort of rider what what would the optimum length be do you think if we have a race longer than a week we're going to just end up with a lot of very very tired women getting injured or do you think we could still have fireworks i personally think two weeks is is like a realistic target i think three is a bit redundant i think that would I don't really see there being that much to gain from just mirroring exactly a men's stage race. I think that's a model that's organically developed for them. And I think a lot of what's being fought for now is to create something exactly the same to mirror something. Whereas that organically became the biggest sporting event in the world, became the biggest race in the world. And that became their format. I think, like you were saying from Van Bluten, she came from the Giro I was commentating on the course and presenting and I spoke to her before the race and, and she was sort of saying, oh, I'm probably a bit tired and I thought, yeah, I don't believe you because she's not the most honest of riders in that respect. Um, and um, then, yeah, she obviously won, which is also a shock to everybody. I was commentating and in the time I got from the commentary box to the finish line to interview Van der Breggen, the winner, she hadn't won. I was like, okay, I missed that, but okay, whatever. Um, and um, I think that proves that actually it can be as exciting. I think having raced, I've raced this year three times, I think, and having raced 10 days, you don't, you don't get that much worse, really. Like, as in, the first day, obviously, you feel normally the worst, actually, because you've, you've rested into it. You go into it fresh but stiff, almost. You come over-rested. Um, by day 10, your body is just in the rhythm of it. You don't, it kind of, it, it, one through five go quite slow, then five through seven go glacially slow. And by the time you get 10, you're like, oh, 10, okay. So I think actually two weeks is, is something which I don't think the racing would get worse. I think it would actually create a new evolution of rider and it would, it would create a rider that, that was just a different beast in the, in the way that Van Bluten is that I think others would then be able to match that. And someone like Cassia is not the best authority on this kind of thing. She's a bit... She's, I absolutely love her, good friends, but I feel like she's a bit of like a firecracker and she would just be like, let's just race a day and go crazy. Like she's very much that kind of ride, like no plan. She just does what she wants to do and it kind of either plays off or it doesn't. Um, but I, I think we could have two weeks that was profitable and exciting. Yeah. What do the rest of you think? I agree, really. Um, I think as well, some short stages are needed to make it, you know, good to, even better to watch. Because um, obviously loads of, people say how women's racing is boring and and everything and I feel like the shorter races definitely are are better to show you know that it's not boring you know it is fun it's not just because if you had them all long races at stage like yeah stages I think people wouldn't find it as interesting watching um just because yeah you you tend to just race it and then obviously it's the last few k's it tends to kind of get a bit exciting I think um, so I think if it was varied and yeah like Molly was saying two weeks I think is long enough because um, otherwise it will just become the same old kind of three weeks I think um, but obviously the other thing is obviously like she was saying the women's teams we only we don't have many riders as well and I think with three weeks it's quite a lot of time to take up when there are other races going on you know we can't really just 
dedicate our only team to that one kind of race, if that makes sense. Um, but no, I think two weeks would be enough. Personally. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about the team sizes. That yeah, if you had to yeah. sacrifice six riders, I mean, the Giro used to be used to be eight and then it became seven so I don't know how big they'd make the team but let's say they made it six you normally only have the budget within team especially when the minimum wage comes in the the teams can't afford to have you know an extra six riders for that so if you if we had three weeks people aren't thinking of the repercussion of okay so a rider has to do that three week stage race so six of your riders have to rest a lot going into it so suddenly you lose six for the classics or the stage racing before it they're then going to be tired. So you, we don't have mid-season breaks like the men do. Um, so, yeah, you, you have to be an all-rounder. You have to race the whole yeah. season. So you'd have to effectively run two programs. But once the minimum wage comes in, I doubt many teams can afford to run a dual-program team like that. No. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a bit about the minimum wage then. So it was announced, uh, I think, late last year, uh, that the UCI are now supporting a minimum wage for women and two divisions of women's teams and uh, trying trying to do the right thing. I know there's a bit of uh, controversy about this because people are saying a lot of the teams aren't going to be able to afford to pay the minimum wage, so they might end up folding. And, uh, you know, where where is the money going to come from for this? Um, do you guys think this is this is viable? Is this is this a step in the right direction, or is it the UCI making unrealistic demands that teams will not, in practice, be able to meet? Definitely a step in the right direction. I think it's only the top ten teams, and they choose not to pay a minimum wage. I think it's it's kind of that fallacy that oh they can't afford it, and I think yeah, but they could just hire one less star and they'd be able to afford it. So. One of the years that I was on Sunweb, we had um, 11 riders, um, and uh, realistically, four were paid very well, and the rest of us weren't paid well at all, down to some riders weren't paid at all. Um, and they chose that year to hire one more star rider, and they paid her 50,000 euros. And we said, well, couldn't you have not hired that star rider that isn't even going to get a race because you've got, she overlaps with another one of your star riders, and you're choosing not to pay three? So it's that argument of, is it actually just going to create an environment where they're forced to build a program that enables them to pay a minimum wage? So for sake of argument, let's say they, they don't get more sponsorship, they don't get more income and money. I think it would just mean there'll be a restructuring of the teams and a framework where they, they're, they're forced to be accountable. I think you're in negotiations for your contract and there is no minimum wage, so you have no card to play. Especially in women's cycling, we undercut each other a lot. And I think it's an issue where we don't place value on ourselves as the riders. And because you're not in a position of power, because there isn't so much money in the sport, you'll be in a, in a meeting for a contract. And it's always... People think it's quite professionally done. It's, it's not. It tends to be, like, pretty backdoor. Like, you're in, like, a weird room. We're like, okay, where are we going kind of thing. And you never see it coming. So one year, it was the last night of the Giro... And we had, like, the Queen stage coming up and the manager calls you, like, into, like, the beer garden of some weird hotel in the back end of beyond. He's like, let's talk about your contract for 20... you're like, oh, should we not? We've just done, like, stage nine of a stage race. And then they always put a clock on it because they, they're trying to... 
manipulate you to take as little money as possible and they'll always say oh but I can get this this woman to do it for free and you think oh this is the issue is that we're constantly undercutting each other by saying oh I'll ride for free and they're going to go well yeah we don't have to pay minimum wage so great we'll have this two free riders and not pay this rider and we'll buy a new star that's that, that can't that it won't even really get to race so I think it's more going to create an environment for the top 10 teams where they have to just restructure the way they behave and I think that's actually I've spoken to some of the some of the agents who work for the Cyclist Alliance and they were saying for example some web I'm not a part of that anymore but he was saying that they've actually already started to introduce that even though it's not time they've they've already begun to do that so they've had a restructuring where they've shed a couple of the riders that were really really high paid but actually didn't really get to race because they were like the second sprinter in a team where there's not that many races so they've already started to do that and I think it shows it's viable it's, it's actually just making them accountable for, for their actions rather than just being able to go oh, we'll pay these three riders 100,000 and the rest of you nothing so yeah I think it can work Great Does anyone else have, uh, have strong views on this? I've never really been in a road team where you get paid so I don't really have much to say on it really so yeah no but I think you're right it isn't the right step so no it's I think that'd be good brilliant and uh, so the cyclist alliance has been going for i think it's getting on for two years now um and this for for those of you who who aren't aware of it um is an organization set up by uh, iris lapendell and a couple of others to uh support um and advocate for uh currently women in pro cycling though i think potentially men one day though at the moment i think the women need it slightly more um has it made much of a difference yet? Um, are, are women getting better support in uh, the areas that they need in negotiating contracts, um, in, in getting better contracts in the first place? Um, I think so, yeah. I think before that came about, anything that you fought for was very much like lots of disjointed voices all trying to fight for the same sort of things but with no real direction and no one to really guide it. Um, especially most of the riders didn't have agents from a personal perspective. I mean, they've just like successfully won their first lawsuit as well. So there's things where before it was such a, everything was, everything was written in paper and it was contracts, but it was all very casually done. And the management and the team owners knew that, well, what are you going to do if you like, you can't sue me because you've got no money. So that kind of, there was this whole process of, well, there's no one to represent you. So really there, there could be mistreatment very easily. Um, and I also think for things like a women's grand tour and stuff, before there was the cyclist alliance, everyone could kind of shout about it as much as they wanted, but there was no one to then put that to someone that might actually make it happen. It was all just everyone individually saying, this isn't right, this is inequality, we, need, we deserve better. But there was no one who could like fight for that in a constructive way and actually go to, like, go to the UCI and be in meetings and actually push for change that was feasible and viable rather than just we want coverage we want the tour de france we want it was all very much just sort of screaming into the void until there was someone to actually bring it to people in power who could maybe make a difference great so um something that i think uh, iris lapendel said in um, an interview around the time the cyclist alliance was set up was um along the lines of we should create our own sport. You know, let's let's stop doing it the way we've been told to do it and the way it's been given to us. Let's take matters into our own hands. So I'm going to ask uh, the three racers here. Um, you may have 
one change you'd like to make it might be two or three but what what would you do what is the most urgent issue at the moment if if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. If you could be in charge for enough time to make something happen, what is the change that you would make so that your world, your career and your racing scene is a better place to be? Um, I'm going to start with Abby. Oh God, that's it. Anything. Anything. It could just be more prize money, but uh, what, what, what do you think would... would... Uh, I'd say TV coverage, mainly, and races. It always seems to not work when the women's racing's on and then magically get up again for the men, I think. So I think more TV coverage, 100% for the women, just to sh- showcase it more, because I think it is, it's definitely just as exciting to watch as the men's. But obviously I'm biased, but, but yeah, it's that really. Okay, and Fran? Um, Yeah, definitely race coverage of, I think it would be getting more people involved and watching women cycling. Like, everyone knows probably the top male cyclists. There's no reason why they shouldn't know the women. We're all out there racing the same. Um, Getting people to know that. And then the minimum pay, if when that comes in, will make a massive difference, I think. And that's as we've all said, massive step in the right direction to getting things on par as they should be, I think, definitely. I think coverage, I feel like I was trying to think of something else to say, but I think it's that thing of you're being paid to ride a bike, but actually you, you work in advertising at the end of the day, 
And I think lots of these changes that are being put in now are kind of, we're putting in a step that's like two steps ahead of what's feasible. So, for example, the minimum wage, I mean, whether I agree or not that they could pay it, I think they've kind of put a minimum wage in before they've put in mandatory coverage for all the races or before they've actually enforced the rules they already have. So kind of that's where teams are coming from in this respect of you've kind of said we have to find more money, but you've not given us the means to find more money. So it's they keep putting like, oh, we've put a women's race with the men's race. And it's kind of like, yeah, great, but we work in advertising and you're not giving us the platform to advertise. So it's that they, they then put coverage on and they don't put any promotion around the coverage. So, I mean, we're getting amazing viewing figures when they do actually put it on. Um, but until the sponsors see like tangible numbers, that's this many people have seen your brand on that jersey and they've seen your bike on in that race, until there's actually like quantifiable data that they can say this works, this is how much exposure you get. I mean, brands want you to advertise their product. When you're riding around, you're effectively a billboard for whatever you're wearing, for the bike you're using. And then we're in a race and it's kind of like, well, if no one sees it, it's, it's complete. There's no advertising because who's, who's, who are we advertising to? Like your dad at the side of the road and the guy in the team car. Like it's kind of that, that issue of you're, provide, you're almost going straight to the, the final step, which is oh, prize money, minimum wages, all this kind of stuff like contracts, agents and things. But actually, we're effectively like there's no work. So you have to give us, let us work is kind of what we're all trying to fight for. Great. Okay, so we're approaching the point where I'm going to turn this over to, uh, to everybody else for questions because I think I have hogged the riders quite, quite enough. But I have a couple more. Um, one question is, um, what do you think men's cycling could learn from women's cycling? Because there's a lot that's not going well in women's cycling, but there's a lot that I think is going better. So I've watched women's races and they are more exciting because you have these crazy people attacking right from the off because they're only riding 120k, therefore they actually can. They don't have to save their legs for the extra 100k or so. Um, so the races are often more interesting and I'd like to see the men race over shorter distances. I've also um, heard a lot more from female pro cyclists about the the difficulties of being in that world, about the pressures and about the effect it can have on you. So Molly, you've spoken very publicly and bravely about um, suffering from depression after your enormous crash. And I think in the blog post you wrote about that, you, you said... I almost didn't. I almost stopped it here, but I thought, no, I need to, I need to go out ahead and say this. And I read the blog post, and then there's about 6,000 comments afterwards with everybody saying, oh, my God, thank you. If you look at uh, male pro cyclists over the years, a large number or a significant number of Tour de France winners have ended up committing suicide. And every few years, there's some very well-documented... Um, a situation where somebody has uh, has not done very well with the pressures of racing and then of coming out of it. And the most recent one was Jan Ulrich. Um, I think this is something that women's cycling is already doing a lot better, though maybe maybe it's not perfect. Um, do you guys have any feelings for um, you know if you were to sit down with the great and the good of men's cycling? Um, how could you sort them out? Uh, what can men's cycling learn from women's racing? I think you touched on it, the more unpredictable racing and the shorter the shorter racing. I think that's 
something where actually even when they up the women's limit so we used to race for example like the Tour of Flanders and stuff used to be 120 and then they made it 140 and we all kind of went okay like this just seems pretty pointless to just like ride for 20k slowly at the beginning of the race just because we can now kind of thing so that's the sort of thing where I think I don't think it's necessarily a better thing to have longer races um I think is the mental health thing and all that kind of stuff better I think there's more of a because a lot there's a more of an environment of togetherness about it and you're more in it together and there is something although you don't want to be having to fight for something like equality there is something in sharing in something together I mean for the men it's all about just they're all about profit all about performance all about results they're already if you're going to be in the world tour you're already going to be well off you're already going to have lots of money you're already going to have lots of success to even be there and their minimum wage is pretty high and so they've already got that side of it whereas for us there's something in in sharing in that battle together that I think does help you. I think the mental health thing I think is 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 just I think it's a side effect of the environment that you're that you're in. I think it's really high pressure. It's kind of all consuming. It's 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 brilliant and amazing, but at the same time it you can't show any weakness. You your your teammates are your teammates, but we just spoke about this earlier that yeah, they're your teammates, but they're also your competition. You're fighting for race positions. You're fighting for race starts. You're fighting to be the team leader. You're fighting to, to keep your contract. Normally, you're on a one-year contract. I think psychologically, that's really damaging is this idea of, like, you have a job now, but unless you're brilliant, you're not going to have one next year. And it's this thing of, like, you're constantly striving for goals that are just out of reach of where you are. And, and actually, your team is quite hard on you because they, you need to hit this target. And for them everyone has got some got pressure on them from one step up the ladder so normally you'll hate your director because he's the one who's putting pressure on you to lose weight for this race or win this thing or get this result but the team owner is putting pressure on him to win this race or get this result and then the team owner is having the sponsors say well unless you win this race we're not going to sponsor you so I think down the power struggle of each level kind of everyone is in this pressure cooker environment and um then when you leave it, I think also what you said, it's been your life. This is your entire, it's everything you know. It's 24-7, this is all that you know. And I think I also struggled. I, I was very public with it when I stopped riding, but I then actually really struggled with it when I came back here in that I suddenly was like, well, now what do I do in my life? Since I was sort of 15, 16, this is all I've known. I've not lived in this country for a long time. I've like lived my life day to day in this environment where you're, it, everything's prescribed. You know exactly what you're doing every day. You know what your goals are. You almost have like purpose. You have, you have stimulation from the like nerves of it, the excitement of it, the whether you win or lose, you do that together and you're reinforcing each other the whole time. There's this feeling of you lose a race and you've lost it with set, like five other people that you've committed your whole life to and it's kind of suddenly you're at home and there's you kind of in this emptiness of well now what am I doing and where's the value and where's where's the stimulation and where's the worth and that's where that issue comes I think aftercare is a big issue that once you stop being a rider that's it you're not a rider anymore goodbye and I think that's where those issues I think there needs to be some kind of system in place where once you're out of it there's kind of some reintroduction where you have like a softer landing back into reality mm-hmm. oh that's that's great thank you um, one thing I have seen a lot of sort of over the years is that um, pro female cyclists often have either a side gig or a whole side career I think the most uh, obvious example is Emma Pooley who also has a PhD in geotechnical engineering which must come in useful Um, so I don't know but I would hazard a guess that if you've 
got something else going on, it's a bit easier to leave this kind of rarefied bubble of pro cycling and actually have a bit of a life. But I don't know, how, how do you guys feel about it? Fran, you have an actual career and a degree. And um, do, you, do you think that helps? Does that keep things in perspective? Um, so I guess for me, it's been more of learning how to balance everything. So if, if I've ever been injured on the bike and I've had to take a break from the bike, for me, it's always been easier, I guess, because I've always had things that have been able to fill my time um and I've never felt like I haven't had anything to do um I guess so would you want to if things went well become a full-time professional cyclist is that a life you would like so originally before today (laughs) maybe (laughs) I'm really sorry (laughs) dreams have been crushed today um I think it's still I race because I want to get better and if getting better means going on to kind of better teams being a pro one day that's definitely I the one thing that I enjoy most in my life still right now is cycling and if I were to progress towards cycling as my career that's yeah that's still a dream for me that's what I'd love to do I guess Awesome. Well, I hope it happens. Good luck. (laughs) Okay, so I have one more question for um, all here present, and this is a fun one. Um, I spend a lot of time obsessing and geeking out over the Tour de France route because I get to ride it. Um, And I spend a lot of time thinking about what my kind of top ideal stage would be, like which mountains we'd go up, which direction the wind would be in, how I would win. Um... (laughs) Or beat fee, at least. Um, I'd like to ask you guys the same question. What's your ideal stage? How long would it be? Where would it be? Would it be flat? Would it be hilly? Would it be towards the end of a long race? Or would it be a one day? Would you win? Would your teammate win? Go for it. Um, (laughs) Oh, God, what would... I think it would be... I reckon it would be final day of the stage race. And you're not winning I think you'd want to be in second place but by the end you'd have won so it's that thing of like you go in it's like this is the last stage we can do this and I think always mountains I think that's always I think this, the flat stages always seem like they'd be easier but they're so much harder the stress is off the charts like literally it's like you finish and you're like I've been at war like it feels absolutely horrific at least in the mountains there's like some organization i mean you very early on on a mountain you know your place like you'll be like goodbye everyone like you haven't even got to the mountain someone's screaming gruppetto and like leave it we're not we're not even there yet like still doing the lead out for your teammate and you can hear it was always someone like garishi barbara garishi is a sprinter she'd always be we'd be in the lead out for the mountains and you'd be there like giving it everything you just hear gruppetto gruppetto and like oh my god <laughs> so that uh, i think It'd be something in the mountains, I think. I, crosswinds are always fun if you're the one making the echelon, not if you're at the back of the echelon. So I think make the echelon, already split it, then into the mountains, and then you go from second to the victory. Yeah. Great. So, yeah. You put some thought into yeah. this. Uh, Abby, what about you? Ideal stage. I mean, I don't really think I can top that, really, to be honest. Um, well, you can't, because she's won. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Right, I'll be second. So... Um, <laughs> I'd be slightly behind. <laughs> no, I'd want an epic mountain, snow, blizzard, solo, giving it everything and just on the tops, just smashing it and then 
Yeah, that would be mine. Solo, Solo breakaway. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Fran? Um, probably not put as much thought into it, but <laughs> probably some kind of breakaway situation uh, where you get split over some kind of hill, I guess, and then hopefully you'd win from a reduced sprint, maybe, something like that. Very good. <laughs> Fiona, what's your ideal stage? One with no one else suffering saddle sore, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, probably last year on the tour, um, the day with the three mountains back-to-back uh, has to be... Which all, one? Uh, the Madeline, the... Yeah, the... What was the next one? And then Alpe d'Huez. The Prado Fair and then Alpe d'Huez. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was an awesome day. Has to be hot. Has to be over 30 degrees. Otherwise, I'm not riding. Because <laughs> it has to still be warm in the descent. Can't do this whole cold descent thing. Uh, and, yeah. And actually, I, I wouldn't mind whether or not I lost or not. But, yeah, has to be warm. Yeah, has to be warm. Fiona will always win the tan line competition. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to turn this over to the audience now. Um, does anybody have any questions for our panel? And I think we have a roving mic, so we will actually hear you. There's a gentleman at the back there. If you wave your hand around, and uh, he will come and find you. Hi. Um, is um, regarding I, I feel like cycling in general is heading towards um, a world where it isn't just about results anymore because results aren't worth everything to sponsors and image and brand are increasingly valuable and I feel like women's cycling in particular has probably been some women women cyclists have figured this out a lot earlier than, than the men because if you're not at the very top when you're a woman you're probably not making a very good living, whereas if you're not at the very top as a man, you're probably still making a decent living, so you don't have to figure out other means of, of, of income. So, I'm curious what the panel thinks about that trend in general, because what you're starting to get is people who attract a lot of attention but aren't necessarily the very best cyclists. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point, actually. It's something we always say as female professional cyclists is uh, the current state of it is that you if you want to make a good living you either have to be the best in the world or you have to be social media famous that's what everyone says you'll always be like standing on the start line and we'd always like bitch about the riders it's like just because she's famous on Instagram she's not even good like, there was always those ones where you're like just because you're born pretty like it's you know, <laughs> there's always those ones where you think yeah they've twigged that okay if I get you know loads of followers on Instagram I become someone where just the brand wants me to wear their clothing I get you know I get a following then they're going to be as profitable I mean there's some riders where you know that, you know, for example, a bike brand has said, like, I want her, so you have to hire her, so then they get hired at a good wage purely because a brand wants them. I think that's something that certain people have twigged, but I think also it's, it's something that you're either good at or you aren't. I think it's kind of a model where lots of people try it, but actually very few can nail getting a social media following. That's a really difficult thing to do. But I think we will have a movement towards hopefully it's something where it's not all about winning and losing it's about personality about the, like you say the style of rider how you ride just getting media exposure um, I think good luck to them the ones who are good on social media I, I always hated it but I think we were always pushed to do it um, 
But, yeah, some riders... I feel like some people just have the gift of, like, the Instagram game. I think you're either a selfie queen or you're not. <laughs> Does anyone else have, uh, have any views on that? Um, I think uh, from a sponsorship side as well, I don't know if being on a team that has sponsors, you've ever felt the responsibility, but maybe on a, on a little team... Um, like us this year um, we're working with um, sponsors that I kind of feel like I want to help out and doing the social media game and trying to promote them um, is helpful kind of for both sides um, anything that they're doing to help us like you want to help them back um, I think there needs to be a two way street you can't expect something um, in return and not give anything back um, and I think by changing that and trying to do that a bit more it's probably quite helpful for everyone I think also some teams have become cleverer at it than others. I think I've been on a, a range of teams and some of them I think haven't quite understood that, that it's not all about like, yeah, just we have to win this race and if we don't, that's it. Other teams who are actually like don't get that good results, but you think they have and then you look back at the season, you go, oh, actually you weren't like the winning team. You didn't win lots. You got maybe a couple of good results. They just played the game really well. I think the quicker that teams get onto that kind of train of thought, I think actually it'll become a happier place just because you can ride with a bit more personality a bit less robotically a bit less pressure on winning there's there can be some like style in the racing and some fun in it so i think i hope that the teams start to get more of an idea of that actually it's about the perception of of people and the exposure of brands rather than just i won or, or i lost kind of thing thanks very much um yes there's a question another question at the back by the way, this is your very last chance to get a raffle ticket. If you have not yet thrust a handful of tenors at Bella Velo, come down to the front here and buy a raffle ticket. Okay, your question. Um, first of all, thank you. This is so interesting <laughs> and uh, great to hear. Um, this might, yeah. <laughs> um, this we'll might get a little bit deep in terms of obviously. We're all women here. We're not always. We have men as well, which... Um, but um, you guys have touched on the fact that we don't need to ha necessarily have um, an equal number of 21 stages for the Tour de France for men and women. But how does it make you feel as a woman, um, as a female cyclist, that you, even if you wanted to do that, that you just don't have that opportunity because you're a woman? How does, how does that make you feel? Hmm. Angry and frustrated, I think. Um, I think there's, it's a difficult one. I think when you're first in the fight for it, when you're quite like a fresh pro, you kind of have a bit more like fight in you and then it does start to feel a bit like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Um, I, I don't think, any, none of us necessarily felt, I didn't ever get the idea that, that we felt like, oh, we wanted 21 and we wanted exactly the same and I didn't get that sense. I think it was more, I, uh, there was more of a frustration of, what we currently had not being as good as it could be there was always that feeling so stuff like at the Giro you'd be there and you think this is an incredible race this is 10 days of incredible racing um, but there's no coverage and they didn't seem to even really care about that or want that and that was the kind of thing where that would start to frustrate you that you were like this was an amazing race this would have been like so exciting and people would have been like interested to watch this and it would have been entertaining and, and it kind of was just lost in like you know the ether of like Wi-Fi-less like TV-less Italy somewhere um, and a lot of the politics of it started to frustrate you a lot. So things like 
the women's tour kept getting declined more days by British Cycling and that started to like really get to you as a rider that, that you were like, this is just so incredible and just because of politics and, and the structure and the fact that British Cycling didn't own the race and this kind of stuff, they kept doing that kind of thing. It was more the politics, I think, that, that started to just get to the point where you, you kind of felt a bit dejected about it, but kind of I think now there's enough happen, is, is happening that you feel like, oh, we are at least like slowly stepping towards it, whereas... In the first few years that I was pro, nothing really changed. I, there wasn't any big steps. Um, but I think 21, it, there was never much of a feeling about, like, oh, if we'd have wanted to or not. I think it's more wanting what we had to be as good as it could have been. I think it was a, a lot of waste. We felt like there was a lot of, of the riding was wasted and kind of entertainment value that people were saying, oh, no one wants to watch it. And it's like, you're not letting them not want to watch it. Like, kind of let us show they do. And that, that was more like the frustration than, than it necessarily be mirroring the men's. Yeah. Anybody else? Any deep-set frustrations? <laughs> yeah. I think, oh, just like from a medical point of view, physiologically... Like for, for women to do probably the 21 stages is actually asking probably quite a lot from them and I think I agree probably the two weeks for the women is probably enough um, just just physiologically guys have just much more muscle mass bigger hearts, bigger lungs and they're just much more able to cope with it so actually the two weeks is much more yeah. feasible for yeah, women to do. Yeah and that's actually like an interesting point is this thing of I think every time anything's mentioned where it's that women are are just medically, like, physiologically weaker. I think whenever it's mentioned, like, no, there's equality, we're the same. It's like, no, just physiologically, we're different creatures. And actually, like, we are naturally weaker. Like, if you just think, like, a muscle perspective, like a lung capacity, like the aerobic ability, there is just a difference there physiologically. And I think that's something where quite often just in the, like, battle of, like, equality, like, gender, then everyone gets kind of wrapped up and we have to have the same. It's like, no, I think we should have the... I always say it should be equal opportunity, not necessarily that it's exactly the same. It just we have the equal opportunity to do the same things, and yeah. and yeah, whether that's two or three, I think that's kind of an irrelevance in that in that context. Yeah. Well, I would argue that uh, the men should only really be doing two weeks because they look a bit tired by the end. <laughs> uh, Fiona, you've uh, you've seen a lot of riders ride multiple stages of the Tour de France and the whole the whole route. Um, have you noticed any particular differences um, in the way that male and female riders um, you know, come into their own over the course of the event or get weaker or get stronger or have good days and bad days? Or is it different for every rider? I think it's a bit difficult to comment specifically on whether or not there's a difference between the men and the women just because proportionately at the moment there's not that there's not enough females riding um, that can make that kind of judgment. But certainly, I think the women bring a totally different beast to these things. So a lot of the guys will arrive at these events quite pumped, quite keen to, like, you know, throw their weight about. Um, and actually, very quickly, they realise that they go out there quite hard, quite just wanting to show off, show what they can do. And actually, just with this... The, the, the duration of the event they suddenly realise that they need to pace themselves, they need to bring themselves in whereas the women you can see they've sussed it already you know, they've, they, they, they can see they're in there for the long, the long haul and actually um, bring a bit of kind of group 
groupness, if that makes sense, to, to the team. So um, the, the, the group will gradually kind of break down into the, the kind of like where they are in terms of speed and, and how they spend their day. And actually, it's really quite nice to see them break off and, and women and men to ride together. And you'll, you'll see the days where the men have like you know, the long flat stages and, and they're powering up the front and, and then gradually they'll start to pick up injuries and then actually it's quite nice to see them you know, understand maybe where other people are struggling um, but then the women will you know, have a kind of more of a caring, just what we do, have a bit of a kind of softer side. And, Speak for and, yourself, Faith. And bring it, maybe not Emily, but... Um, uh, make it a bit more of a kind of group event, I suppose, is really the, the difference. But I think that's a good thing, and I think that's why it's really important that we try and get more women into the event and, and just make it a bit more, yeah. So we have um, largely thanks to Bella Vello and the ladies from the Cowley Road Condors um, doubled the percentage of women who are riding yeah. the loop this year. So thank you guys. Now, finally, we can start to generalise because we will have a big enough sample. Mm. Um, So, next question. Yes, right here. Hello. Molly, I thought what you said about um, needing an advertising platform. Really? Really interesting. (laughs) Um, And what you said about... And whether you thought there was anything we can learn from other sports, um, so uh, the likes of Formula One and the social media, um, Lewis Hamilton, he's blown apart sports content, taking it out of the hands of all the TV broadcasts, uh, and obviously women's football and rugby is more televised. So yeah, just wondered what your thoughts on that. Um, I think cycling is... It's in a bit of an awkward position. I think that's somewhere where we're following the men's model that isn't necessarily the right way to go. This is kind of like getting into a bit like the detail of how the sport's structured. So a lot of sports, are they own the means of production effectively. So they own the TV rights. They own the stadiums. They, they can ticket the events. But also, if you take something like... They always use the example of NBA whenever we had these talks. But something like you know basketball, football, whatever. If they play a game they then sell the rights to the tv and they get millions and millions and millions and they earn money from that we're in a bit of a weaker position in that the aso has all the money really um the owner of the tour de france um so they own the means of production so that's where teams are trying to innovate and you are starting to see it happen um where teams have now kind of clocked onto the idea of oh we don't own the tv rights so it doesn't i mean no one's paid to race the tour de france i mean that that doesn't happen the aso earns millions from the tour de france the teams are paid nothing to ride it because they don't get to sell the tv rights so that's where this whole velon thing came about where they have the the um cameras on the bikes and they try they're trying to start new races and that was actually the owner of some web started that with in, in collaboration with some of the other the teams where they decided okay we need to break free of this model we have right now because it's unsustainable because a team can lose its sponsors and just fold in a year whereas in other sports they just survive for hundreds of years sometimes um so that's where i think actually as as women it's this argument and we we kept having it in in conferences and in debates and stuff was are we doing the right thing in copying the men um because we're effectively 
it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're kind of like following them because we have to follow them and then we're following them down the rabbit hole of this unsustainable model when we could just break free of that right now and start something else, but then we don't have the, pla- the exposure and the media. So it's kind of this like cycle of, of, of how we're going to solve this issue where... Um, the ASO effectively I mean we were always told in interviews if we ever mentioned the ASO we had to have a press officer with us we really weren't allowed to talk about the ASO we really weren't allowed to answer questions about it we weren't allowed to mention their name because it's the, the politics was so like contentious and um, they have all the power effectively because they own the biggest races in the world so you're in a position where for example let's say that they do have a women's tour de France for sake of argument and the ASO own it so it runs parallel to the men's tour de France you'll be in a position where sponsors say well we're not going to sponsor your team unless you ride the tour de france the women's tour de france so you have to race it but you're earning no money for racing it and you'll have but you have to race it to have a team so you can't break free of it to start your own races so it's kind of this never-ending cycle where i think there is an argument for diversifying early so at the moment we haven't got a massive sport we haven't got a lot of money we haven't been trapped by the same failings that are failing the men's cycling because it is relatively poor you talk about like rich male cyclists i mean they're still way poorer than the richest in any other sport even though it's one of the biggest sports in the world and that's because the teams have no money even the biggest men's teams in the world have no money compared to like a football club or a rugby club or something you know a sport where they own the tv and they own the rights to the sport um so i think there is an argument for us early on breaking away from just going oh let's have a women's race next to a men's race let's have a women's race next to a men's race and they're always owned by the aso so it's then you know you're then attaching yourself to the same failing model i think if we could somehow break free of that and start to use social media start to use things where we make our own races we use the velon model of having like gopros on the bike and Could you filming explain it. to us what Vel- velon oh, is oh sorry so velon is the it's basically a, a company owned by lots of the male teams, so the female teams aren't to do with it yet, um, where basically all the male world tour teams, except the French ones, because they can't fight the ASO, which is a French race organization, so they kind of get like freed from it because politically they can't join it. Um, all the other world tour teams own Velon. They own the company in equal shares between them. So when they race a Velon race and it goes on the TV, they then get all the profit from all the viewers, all the advertising, all the marketing, everything. So they're racing a race much like a football team would play a football match where they're getting paid to race that race. And if an advertiser advertises on the TV, they get the money in their pocket. So that's the model where there's an argument for if it's if it's possible, which is difficult to do, is for the women to kind of stop following the men down the same failing model and instead go, okay, let's make something where the teams own it. So like this model or so something on social media, things around building our own structures where we can actually own the TV rights and own the advertising and where we can make teams that are sustainable rather than year on year or just falling apart because if you lose a sponsor your team folds and that's kind of it's sorry it's very like i've learned about this a lot so i'm probably not making any sense but this is this is really useful um i think a lot of people are learning a lot from this does uh, do any of the you other guys have uh, have any views on what other sports cycling could be emulating or learning from i i don't especially but uh, a lot of people point out that uh running and newer disciplines like triathlon seem to be getting it a lot more right i don't necessarily know why that is but um 
I think... Maybe because it's more individual. I think the overheads of a team is massive. So I think that's part of the issue, is that the cost of running a team is huge, but the cost of running an individual isn't that big. I think it's kind of one of those things where the overheads for a team is massive because, you know, for the race, you don't get paid to go to a race, so we're just saying. So if you race the Tour de France, that costs you tens, hundreds of thousands of pounds to race that, which you then have to find someone to give you tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds to race that race that you then don't directly profit from. So I think there is an argument for us following sports where they own the competition and where we we actually start from a blank page rather than just following them down the same pathway. Yeah. Does anyone have any further questions? Yes, there's one over here. I don't know where the mic's... Here we are. Hi. Um, I, I've been following people on Twitter that have been campaigning for a full women's tour de France. Um, and actually reading a bit, some of them saying it might suit women more, um, I suppose, in the way that running and other ultra-distance events can suit some women. And so hearing you say something kind of different to that is making me wonder if, if there's an issue with um, a kind of coherent ask or campaign from women, and maybe that doesn't... that everyone thinks something different would work best. Does that... Does that make sense? Yeah, you, I get what you're saying. I think it is, uh, yeah, are we all kind of fighting each other in the same battle? It is this thing of like one rider will say, let's have one day races that are 120k and the next one will say, I want three weeks. And it is, it gets to the point where we are diluting the fight. And I think there is an argument for, and that's maybe where something like the Cyclists Alliance needs to take a bit more control is in like directing the narrative from like a you know an overhead perspective because i think quite often there's a fight going on but we're missing other battles that we could win and things like that i think so for example this this fight for women's tour de france i think i having worked on la course which was with the tour de france having raced la course kind of i have a different opinion maybe to other people in that I don't think it's impossible. I think that's a lie that it's impossible. But I think we're fighting a losing battle there. That's it's great for exposure. It's great in the media. It plays really well. It gives us like a platform to use our voices. But I think actually we're kind of missing other battles that maybe we could win. But then other people are arguing with me for that, and it's kind of it is this thing where I think the arguments are being diluted in this thing where each one you're just like someone says no eventually. But it's this thing of actually we're losing fights along the way so even when the Giro was on there was this big fight on Twitter and in and, and, and every I was on like five different podcasts all fighting for the Giro to be the Grand Tour but I actually didn't agree with that at all I thought it should be the Women's Tour it should be the Grand Tour and kind of that then I ended up clashing with people over that and it was like we're all we all want the same end goal but we're all fighting different battles along the way and we're losing focus and I think that is like a definite issue is this idea of we're, di- we're diluting it in the fact that we're fighting each other I think so for example with the Giro Rosa that's some old like Italian guys run that and they don't want to have it as the Grand Tour they've said like we like it how it is we like not having the TV we like not having the coverage 
And then at the same time, the women's tour had just been denied two more days again, and no one mentioned it. And I was there like on Twitter, like no one's talking about the fact that the women's tour, which is actually could be our grand tour, like that could be our biggest race. It's our biggest in terms of media. Guy Elliott, the organizer, wants it to be the grand tour. He's got the backing for it to be that. It's the best run event that I've ever done. It's and at the same time, everyone's still like, but the Giro's historical. I'm like, yeah, historically bad. It's kind of we're saying that the history of women's cycling is bad, and yet we're fighting so hard hard to have that be the grand tour just because it has history but actually do we not want to fight for the future not fight for history to be better like that's kind of where i think yeah we're kind of losing focus and i do agree with that i think we need to get some cohesion in our argument yeah okay i think we have time for one more question and there's a very eager person at the front with a question (laughs) go for it yes the the um in terms of, in terms of the uh, training up for a cycling tour, do you need? It seems to be that the m- men have more notice of training for a year or two years compared to women. And so, is that right? I, I might be wrong, um, but that's the way I understood it. Uh, that. Uh, you, you suddenly are, sh- are shown into a uh, event, and uh, you you haven't got enough time to train, and that should possibly tra- change. Um, yeah, it's it's it is more organised than it seems. So I think normally what you do is you get together with your new team in October or something, and already you'd have like a rough plan of what your calendar was going to be so you did have an overview of what it was um, and then as you got closer we'd normally have a camp in December a camp in January and a camp in February and again they'd they'd alter things based on your form and your numbers and, and where you're like where you were going in terms of your fitness um, but you tended to stay pretty clear on your plan um, and it used to be colour coded like green, orange, red for the how much how seriously you were taking that race as an individual so there was kind of some degree of training specifically of certain races and also trying to peak for different periods of time because you obviously you can't hold a peak for the whole year um the difference being with the team size is that you had to stay at a higher level for longer you couldn't just for example you're racing the women's tour you couldn't take like you know a month off before and a month off after that's kind of where that's a bit different that you had to hold like a pretty high level and just fluctuate a little bit between the races um, the issue comes in with with injury and illness. So when I didn't know I'd be racing the Giro, I, I originally was meant to be racing it, and then I got dropped from the team. Then I said, like, okay, I don't want to do it then. Like, take me off the calendar. Like, don't tell me I have to race it now. And then, yeah, a week before I had to race it, but someone got injured, and that's kind of... That's how that goes. But I think it's... It, it is organized. You do have a plan, but I think it's team size. That's, like, the bottom line is that they can't afford to have more, and so they're normally they say you want to bank on having one ill and one injured at all times so you're really down to eight most of the year because always someone's crashed always someone's got some illness like that's just how it is um so you want to bank on having about eight riders so realistically you're going to end up doing races that you didn't know you were going to do and you kind of just have to roll with it a little bit and just go with the flow and um that that is different if you're the team um, leader though abby how different is this for you because you've been doing road and track how far ahead do you do you plan your training or is your was your is and was your training plan for you 
Uh, I mean, it was hard for, for me and obviously the girls because we tried to balance track and road and they're very different disciplines. Um, I mean, you, for the track, you've got to be fast and it's very short. I mean, our team pursuit would be roughly around four and a half minutes, four minutes. So it's completely different to then be thrown into, say, a Belgium classic, which is full of cobbles, say, like a 130k race. It's, it's hard, and obviously, because, like Molly was saying, everyone's either, not everyone, but majority are sometimes ill, crashed. You don't actually know what you are doing, so it is very hard. I always found it quite hard to then be thrown into something last minute because you aren't really very prepared. We were never really prepared for one thing because we were trying to do so many different things um all right we would we would just kind of train obviously we'd have to train through it the whole time so we couldn't really peak for something because we'd always have a track race coming up and obviously our main focus was track so our road racing wasn't really as important in that sense so i mean yeah it was hard to just what's be your thrown. your preference what's your favorite discipline see it used to be track and I've always loved the track obviously I did it since I was seven so I've always loved it all my main results are pretty much on track Um, but I like the road just as much I think it's just as fun and it's different and I think I'm going to prefer this year just focusing on one thing so yeah no I, I think I'm growing to like the road now I didn't think I would, but no, I'm really enjoying the road. So. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing more of you on it. Um, so I have one final question for each of the speakers, which is simply what's coming up for you in the next year? Um, so I'll start with you, Fran. What's coming up for you in the next year? Um, so this year, taking a step up, um, joining a proper team, uh, I guess a local regional team. Um, We're planning to go to more of the bigger races, so the National Women's uh, Road Series. Um, I did them last year. I got round. Uh, This year, I'd like to do a bit better, maybe get myself in the mix a bit. Um, They're my kind of what's coming up, my my main goals this year. And you, Abby? Um, I've been doing the six days on the track recently. Um, So I was just out in Oz doing the one in Melbourne. Um, And then I have some, yeah, my races that are next up are hong kong and manchester six day um which are great events i I love them um so yeah they're my main focus coming up and then i'm off to do some belgium uci races so i i I love racing over there so i'm looking forward to them awesome and what about you molly are we gonna see you racing again yeah I, i am racing again this year uh just domestically um i'm kind of trying to balance some work in the media and kind of keeping that going with Eurosport and keeping my options open a little bit I think I do want to go pro again as much as I made it sound like a nightmare I did really I did really love it and um I think I want to go back but I'm taking a year of racing domestically I'm targeting the nationals um and mainly the time trial I've kind of got a bit of like a project going to see if I can like podium again in the time trial nationals which I didn't ride a bike for a long time so it's going to be quite difficult but that kind of was like a fun target to put on the back of it and like I've done it before so it's kind of let's see if I can get back there and and yeah, then hopefully turn pro again at the end of the year, but I'm kind of letting it go where it goes, yeah. And Fiona, what's your plan for the year? So uh, I'm going to be doing the tour um, for two and a half weeks this year. Um, I'm going to be sitting some extra professional exams to progress up the ladder and hopefully become a consultant in A&E. Um, uh, what else? I'm going to be juggling three jobs as a GP and doing sports and medicine 
and yeah, just trying to keep my head above the water. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, well, I'd like to thank uh, all four of our speakers. It has been such a privilege having all of you up here with me and getting to ask all my boring questions. Um, I think everybody will join me in a very big round of applause. And before anyone goes anywhere, we have the all-important raffle to draw. Before I start on the raffle, though, I'd just like to say a quick word about how beautifully this event has been organised. So as someone who's been part of a lot of events involving cycling over the years, I know that when an event goes very smoothly, a heck of a lot of work has gone in behind the scenes. And this event has been in the planning for many months, uh, mostly at the hands of one person. I don't know where she is. I think she's probably... She's over here. Um, So Ella Green has put an extraordinary amount of hard work into making this evening success. And I think we will all agree that she's done a superb job and that it's been wonderful. So well done, Ella. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.